Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. I am your host, Toby. AlphaList is a closed community with over 400 CTOs who share their knowledge and experience in a Slack space and at events. With this podcast, we want to give our members and interested parties insights into the thoughts and ideas of top CTOs. If you're interested in becoming a member of the community, please visit alphalist.com to find out more on how to apply. This episode is kindly supported by Fastly, the biggest challenger in the CDN market. Fastly is pushing ahead the technical boundaries and is, from my perspective, the best solution on the market. Fastly is known as one of the key drivers of the Edge Cloud movement. Well-known customers of Fastly are Shopify, The New York Times, Reddit, GitHub, and many, many more. If you want to try it all with first-class support, just go to fastly.com slash alphalist. Welcome to the Alphalist podcast. Today, I'm talking to Mark Porter, the CTO of MongoDB, about unstoppable open source organizations and their engineering culture. Mark is working for MongoDB, a publicly listed company with a market cap of 15 billion. They changed the database landscape with a magical server that every developer wants to use. A database that makes it easy to store almost every imaginable JSON object and run queries against it. Did I get that right, Mark? Yeah, I especially liked the uh, magical part. Um, Tobias, I'm really, really excited to be here today. And uh, thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for being here. So um, as far as I recapitulated that correctly, you worked for NASA, Oracle, AWS, MariaDB and Grab. So you've seen a lot. Um, let me start with a very personal question. How old are you actually? Well, I'm 54 years old in uh, physical years and I've been working in the database group in the database groups for about 40 on and off. So uh, I started working with databases when I was in my mid-teenage years. In your mid-teenage years. And uh, you were then uh, like developing Turbo Pascal programs or what did you do? I did actually develop Turbo Pascal and I worked against Access and I worked against a lot of those early databases. Um, another early database I got the privilege to use was Digital Equipment Corporation's RDB. Um, a great database. And then uh, after that, I spent a bunch of time at Oracle working on the Oracle database engine. Okay. As a teenager, how did you get into that? I've always loved uh, figuring out puzzles and figuring out uh, problems to solve. And so when I was a teenager, I got into this project where we were actually educating Alaskan natives on uh, how to become legal assistants or how to become financial assistants so that they could learn these new skills. It was very exciting. And we started using a database in order to store all the content. And then I actually used a database to store all the questions and answers we gave them in all the tests and all the test results. And, um, you know, I guess what a lot of people don't realize these days is back then, pretty much every developer, we just wrote everything to flat files and we'd read in our flat files and we'd store them in memory and we'd store them out. Um, databases were kind of magical. You didn't have to make up a database every time you wrote a program. Yeah, I remember I also started with with Perl, I think, uh, back in the days and, and flat files, even if databases were available. How did you came to the idea to, to, to also hack the databases you were using? 
Well, so what happened was uh, when I was at uh, NASA, I worked for JPL and RDB was a pretty new product and speaking gently, it needed some help. And so we really got into how the database worked. And I was very, very interested because frankly, I think that persistence, uh, i.e. the idea of someone storing something and having it be reliably there with predictable latency uh, at a reasonable cost is somewhat magical. I'm going to hark back to what you said in the intro about magic. And I just love that promise we make to customers. So when I got out of college and I was offered the opportunity to not just work at NASA using databases, but work at Oracle actually designing and helping create databases, I leaped at the opportunity. So I was at Oracle for 12 years. Uh, I was there initially in the database group for Oracle 5, which a lot of you are kind of probably surprised that there even was an Oracle 5, given that I think Oracle's up around like 19 or 20 these days. Um, and then I was there through Oracle 7. And then I actually moved into a different kind of database. We decided that we could store multimedia data, videos and all those other things. And we very, very quickly came to the decision in the video server group that relational databases were not the be all end all that I might have thought. Uh, we needed to store our videos outside of the database. And, and so we built something called the video server, which was a custom built data store that just obeyed the semantics of, you know, many, many gigabytes of video which back then was a lot of data. Now we might not think of gigabytes or even a, a terabyte as a lot of data, but in 1991, a terabyte filled a room, literally filled a room with four racks of disk drives. At the same time, uh, you had like other experience running uh, with quite a big family you, you mentioned before. And so I think you're a father of five, right? I'm the father of one little girl and I have my doubts that I would be able to handle this while being CTO of a 15 billion company. So tell me a bit more how you, how you manage that. Well, I'll say there's definitely some stuff that are similar between business and personal life. And one of them is picking the best partners. And in business, you want to pick reliable partners you can get along with. And my wife is just amazing. And she has made it possible. She also, like any good partner, uh, constantly helps me raise my level of how I deliver and how I think about things. And one of the most important things she's taught me is that everyone you work with is different and you have to be a different person for everyone you work with. You can't just come up with the perfect father recipe and you can't come up with the perfect leader recipe. Every one of my directs needs a different mark and every one of my children needs a different dad. You think there's quite a lot of, of, of common problems in, in private life and, and business? I think there's an awful lot of commonalities. Now, I will say very openly that I have five teenagers right now. So I, I hope that there's some difference between the maturity level of what goes on in my business and what goes on in uh, my family as my teenagers are growing up and separating themselves from my wife and I. At the same time, there's this concept of people being independent and empowered and people looking for dependence and safety. And I just can't fail to recognize every day the similarity between empowerment and independence and dependence and safety going on in my family and in my social groups and in my work groups as well. So kids also strive for autonomy, mastery and purpose. Kids do strive for autonomy, mastery and purpose. The funny thing is with this reference to Daniel Pink and his excellent work, um, 
is that kids have a meta problem, which is they don't know yet what they're striving for. And so you have this problem of helping them know what they're striving for, but to some degree that takes away their autonomy right there. And so then you have to step back to now that we know that you're struggling for autonomy, let's get you the right level of autonomy. And so, I mean, I just love that. I love people as I've gone on in my career, I've moved from working with code to working with projects, to working with teams, to working with products. And now a lot of what I work with is people and culture. And I just love the different challenges you can encounter you know, through a 40-year career in software. But but do you think that is really changing for people that, that grow up? I mean, that they always know what, what they are striving for? No, I don't think they do. And frankly, I think that in the chaos of today, uh, you know, ever since the millennium, really, uh, there's been this different vision of what kids should be. And we see it sometimes when they when they join us as interns or they join us as, you know, just out of college kids where they're still struggling to figure out who they want to be. Now, to be really clear, I think it's wonderful. In fact, we have an intern program where 30 percent of our employees in engineering came from our intern program. And we love that. And so when I grew up, I guess I'd say that technical software was It was almost more of what you might think of as that blue collar IBM, here's the exact path you'll take kind of career. And now I think that kids or young, young people have to navigate the fact that we give them all this freedom, but with that comes responsibility to, to recognize it and master it. It's really interesting to, to think about it, right? So to compare kids to uh, your your work colleagues uh, do you often do that i do i think about it i think about it a lot actually and i think about you know i have this phrase i use that in order to be who that person needs whoever it is whether it be at work or at home i will do whatever it takes as long as it's not illegal immoral or unethical and as long as it's authentic to me to be what that person needs to be the person that they're trying to grow into And to me, I just think that we're all on journeys. You know, I'm 40 years into my career. I'm still on a journey every day. Just ask my peers and my boss. Um, and I think all of us need to recognize that we're on journeys every day. In fact, uh, one of my best mentors, and I still do keep a network of mentors who I talk to regularly, says to me, the instant you have your job licked is the instant you start, you start failing. Because none of us have our job licked. Throughout all the all the different stages in your career, um, you you saw a lot, right? You saw a lot of different companies and a lot of different cultures. Which which area do you like 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 most? Which which company culture did you like most uh, in the whole time? Is it MongoDB? I guess. So all the cultures are different and they all have different things. And what I learned, I moved my family to Italy for three years. And Italy is a very different culture than where we moved from, which was Colorado in the United States. And what we found over those three years was things that initially struck us as strange or different or unsettling were actually internally self-consistent in that culture. And When you pair that over to work cultures, you'll find the same thing. So Oracle has a pretty top-down culture. And at the same time, Oracle has a culture of absolute excellence. And that means that they'll just wait as long as it takes to get that release perfect. And that's okay. It's internally self-consistent with the business. 
Amazon has this culture where it is absolutely more uh, agile, driven by customers, and they want to get stuff out there and they want to get stuff uh, to customers as quickly as possible. And yet at the same time, that means that sometimes, in fact, a large part of the time, they don't even try to release the perfect product. And that works for them. And at, at Grab, we had to have a culture that was open and uh, open, open and authentic and accepting of the fact that we operated in eight incredibly different countries. And, and that was an interesting thing. And that caused a lot of uh, interesting cultural dynamics. Now, here at MongoDB, we focus on empowerment. And in fact, we have this the couple phrases we use where we actually focus on how people talk to each other. Do we talk to each other with respect? Do we feign surprise when someone says something that isn't true? Do we ask for approvals, more levels of management up than we think we should? And so our culture here is all about empowerment. And that works for what we're doing in particular because we're in the open source community. And I know you want to talk about that a little bit today because we're in the open source community and so much of what we do comes from empowered individuals at companies that aren't even at MongoDB. Sorry, from individuals who are companies that aren't even MongoDB. And so I guess to sum up, every culture just needs to be internally self-consistent. And without naming names, I have been at companies where the culture that was needed to succeed was not the culture the company wanted. And those were hard places to be. And if you find yourself in one of those, you should make a decision pretty quickly of whether it's going to get healthy. And if not, go find someplace else to work. Fundamentally, in tech, we're all volunteers. Pretty much everyone in tech can get a good job within two weeks and a great job within six so come to work every day and realize you're a volunteer. And if you're volunteering someplace you don't want to volunteer, you know what? Go volunteer someplace else. And I totally realize that that is an entitled and privileged thing to say, but it is kind of the reality for tech employees these days. Yeah, I think uh, people also got more aware of that fact, right? 20 years ago, working for Oracle, I think it was it was just perceived different as an employee of, of uh, Oracle, right? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, again, Oracle has a very self-consistent culture of, hey, we're going to produce the absolute best thing in the world. And, and sometimes Oracle doesn't listen to customers as much because they perceive themselves as just being farther ahead. So as an employee of Oracle, you, you have almost this strange responsibility to figure out what's right without getting as much input as you might get at other companies. Uh, that said, it, it's still a great place to work. At least it was when I was there. I, I, I left in 2000, so uh, I don't know. One interesting topic also looking at the at the nerdiness level of companies you worked for is diversity. So uh, how has that been 20 years ago and how is it now? So, you know, there's a lot going on in the world today with all the different movements and all the controversy around diversity and race and all that. And so I'm going to confine my comments to the workplace. Now, in the workplace, I believe that we should have diversity of thought, diversity of opinion, diversity of background, because that creates such healthy conversations and it prevents us from becoming clones of each other. Now, one of the things that's cool is that it's actually great to get diversity of thought, opinion and all that through diversity of race and gender and background and upbringing and other demographics that we care about. Um, I guess the thing that that's really important to me is to make sure that you don't have too many people confirming your opinion around you. 
Um, I've learned as a leader that, you know, there's only one of me in the room and I only have a certain amount of gray matter to apply to every problem. And lately at MongoDB, frankly, I've learned to embrace the silence more where I let the room speak more and they talk and I learn things from people who normally wouldn't have spoken up. And that's a growth area for me. A growth area for me is, is to be inclusive and bring everyone else into the reasoning. And that's one of the reasons I was pretty excited when I saw that the cultural values of many of our teams, the first page of the cultural values, for example, of our query execution team is almost completely about how we speak to each other in Slack, in person, on the phone, et cetera. Because that embraces diversity right there. Okay. Okay. You just mentioned one interesting, uh, interesting phrase, query execution team. So is there really like one team that takes care of the queries um, and only of that? Or how is it organized? Sorry to, to jump into a technical topic. <laughs> well, we, we, have, we have a query planning team. We have a query execution team. We believe that teams should be as small as possible and decoupled as possible. And frankly, for those of you who are out there listening, um, I think lately in the last couple of years, I've realized that all software engineers do is we spend our lives building beautiful pieces of software that turn into monoliths. And then we spend the other half of our lives tearing down those monoliths and decomposing them into services. And, and I think that's natural. I don't think it's something we need to, to strive against. And so the reason I bring that up, Toby, in response to your question is, a monolith is hard for small teams to work on. A monolith is hard for you to move fast and do quick releases on. And engineers love seeing their code deployed. I mean, that's what, that's what we all love. We love seeing someone use our code. The second thing is, is engineers love to work on small teams where they feel that their contribution matters. And so when you go all the way from how you structure your code to how you structure your teams to how you structure your culture, All of those things can either be a virtuous or a vicious cycle. And I'll be very direct with you at MongoDB, we have a lot of products around the database, but the database itself is a hard product to decompose into these small teams. Can imagine it, um, but I also can imagine that it's it's uh, really valuable to, to, to decompose it into small teams uh, because you then can really... Uh, like work in very diverse and small teams. I mean, diversity really comes to play um, when you when you really deal with with a smaller group of people, right? Often with the same colleagues instead of being in some hierarchical, um, mm. big monolithic monolithic play, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So one of the things we try to do is we try to make sure that our teams have, you know, engineers who are early in their careers, engineers who are later in their careers. We make sure that. We're doing mentorship and coaching programs now for junior engineers and for senior engineers, you know, all the way through their career. Um, so, yeah, diversity is really important. And while we're on the topic, you know, diversity is a funny thing. We, we have a industry which for a large part does not mirror the diversity of the populations in which we exist. And, and I think that's a sad thing. And so it's not just about increasing the diversity in your hiring funnel by gender or by race or by background or by tenure. It's actually about increasing the diversity metrics all the way through your organization. How do you onboard people? How do you measure people? How do you promote people? If you're not tracking what percentage of diversity you have of people who've been at your company five years, just as much is one year, you're actually falling down on your job. 
Because where diversity fails in a lot of companies is we fail to nurture and support the diverse populations we hire. This episode is kindly sponsored by Okta Customer Identity Management. If you're transforming into a digital platform and are facing identity management challenges, listen closely now, because Okta offers the market-leading solution to help you make identity and access management work as a service. A platform that offers endless ways to connect with your employees and customers. Get support for your most important customer-facing initiatives. Integrate identity and access into every app and create secure and engaging experiences in no time by outsourcing workforce or customer identity management to Okta. Get started in 15 minutes and test IAM or CM as a service. Create frictionless registrations and login experiences for your applications and make identity the foundation for your zero-trust strategy and enable access for all users regardless of their location, device or network. Visit alphalist.com slash Okta to try it out. In an upcoming episode, I talk to Zagnik Nandy, Okta CTO, about everything identity management. So, Mark, speaking of diversity, um, um, I think you, you saw a lot of different uh, engineering organizations um, and you saw how um, girls are usually um, not, not having a tendency to, to, to uh, being attracted by those. Um, how do you treat that with, with uh, your little girls at home? Um, I mean, do you somehow try to make... Uh, maths more attractive for them, for example. Um, I remember from my childhood that it was always like in a way discriminating for them. Yeah, I think you and I both come from an age where there were these stereotypical beliefs that, you know, women weren't as good at math. And if you go back a hundred years, there were a lot of other stereotypical beliefs. And frankly, I think they should all go away because I think that IT, and at least my experience with computer science, is about problem solving. And so when I work with my daughter, I mean, she just wants to solve problems. That's all she wants to do. The fact that in some environments she's in, she feels less welcome breaks my heart. And so I think it's incumbent upon all of us as leaders who are, you know, in positions of power, such as CTOs, such as school administrators, et cetera, to get rid of all of those biases. Uh, you know, I'm not going to go into details and names, but I mean, there are a couple distinguished engineers at Amazon who are women who are literally the best people I know. And I'm just sad there aren't more of them. Now, I do believe that there are differences between men and women. I'm not going to pretend there aren't. And frankly, I believe that the fact that they come at problems differently actually is a great way to have discussions. And I'm not going to lay stereotypes on how they come up problems differently. But for any of us who are married or in long-term relationships, I think we can all attest that in general, men and women often come at problems differently. And there's treasure in that. And we need to welcome that. And so what we're trying to do at MongoDB with our internship program is we're trying to find people early in their college career and nurture them through internships so that our population coming into the company is actually far more re representative of the population that is available rather than the population that might be stereotypically already within our company. Okay, sounds like a good approach. Um, and it works out? 
it works out so far. Like I said earlier, 30% of our uh, engineering population is interns. And I'm proud to say that 20% of our intern, of our engineering managers um, are intern based as well. So Mark, let's talk a bit more about uh, MongoDB disrupting the data industry. Um, I think it was in the, in the zeros. We all remember then NoSQL came up and I think your company was one of the important drivers of that trend. And I think almost everyone wanted to somehow come up with uh, a NoSQL case and the concept of uh, Oracle, Microsoft and uh, other open source solutions such as MySQL, they became less attractive to developers. Um, why did that happen? So, you know, relational databases were created in 1970. They'd been thought of before then. And, you know, Oracle with Oracle version one and version two in the late 70s came up with this magical mathematical idea. And that was that if everything was in rows and columns, you could ask every question you wanted. And, and frankly, that remains true to this day. Now, the problem is, is at that time, computers and space And, and all of that was so precious that the concept of optimizing for the developer time wasn't really what, what was first front and center. Now, as time went on, computers got faster, storage got cheaper. We were able to do more and more crazy things with computers and wonderful things. And developer time got easier. And when you're sitting in an editor writing a programming language, SQL is just not a natural way to program. Now, by the way, I love SQL at the prompt. I love using this English-like language, it's great, but I don't like SQL in a program. So that's thing one. Thing two, and the it, so thing one was about making it easy for developers. And so the NoSQL movement in general, through using structures like JSON, actually made it easy to program in objects that fit the way programmers wanted to manipulate data in their programs and then let the computers do all the clever, dirty work. And then the separate thing was, was that with the exception of a very few high-end systems, most relational databases are single master. And that has some very, very important uh, features. First, it's much easier to do transactions, okay? Because you're sitting in one memory space in one master, you can figure out transactions. But second, it means that if that master goes down, downtime is unpredictable until it comes back up. It's hard to recover. Second, you can't scale out. So if you scale up on your node to the limit of your node, maybe because you just got featured in the app store and traffic just went up by 10x in three hours, you can't scale out. And your most proud moment as a company that you got featured in the app store can become your worst moment when your backend servers crash. And so to sum up, the, the NoSQL movement, you know, I don't want to think about it as NoSQL. I want to think about it as ease of programming and ease of scalability and uptime. And so that's what really happened. And so in 2007, our founders went out. They couldn't make relational databases do what they wanted to do. So they built their own and they ran DoubleClick on it. Yeah, okay. And it worked out fine. Uh, I mean, it was very easy to, to install, very easy to, to get started with it, uh, fun to play with and so on. And at a certain time, you also started attacking the enterprise use cases or how did that uh, end up? Yeah, so you you did bring up one thing that I left out of my my initial answer, which was, you know, easy to get your holds your hands on. So if you can do a brew install or a yum install of MongoDB in five minutes and have a database, I mean, that was kind of game changing. And so that was, of course, one reason for the massive popularity. Then as you're getting to over time, people started using MongoDB more and more. 
as a general purpose database, and they started using it for enterprises. And so what we found was that it wasn't just for these distributed non-transactional cases. So in MongoDB 3.0, we were delighted to bring the Wired Tiger team on board and really rethink our storage engine to just be so much more powerful and fast and uh, latency predictable and all that. In version four, we launched full ACID transactions between documents and between collections and between documents. And so where MongoDB is currently has all the features that you really care about in a relational database. We also have all those features that came from our NoSQL heritage. We just got there in a different order. And so now, you know, we are better integrated, for example, with some of the security uh, features of the cloud providers than their own databases. And this is not a product pitch in any way. What I'm trying to say is that over time, the open source product has matured into a product that enterprises can use. But that's taken 13 years of the company for that change to, to get to where it is today. You mentioned that the developers actually introduced it to the enterprises. So uh, as far as I understand your story, a lot of the, the stuff you did was, um, and a lot of the clients you got was, was driven by developers, right? Developers that wanted to use your solution. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Our, our primary customer is, has been, is, and probably will be the developer for a very long time. And like, Did that change with now having enterprise sales teams and so on, uh, or is it evolving in a way? No, actually, that was something I learned when I came to MongoDB, because I actually expected to see that when I got inside the walls of MongoDB, well, or now inside the Zoom calls, since the walls are gone, at least for now, is... Our enterprise sales are driven by developers who've chosen MongoDB, who then go to their executives and say, we would like to use this for more and more mission critical use cases. And we'd like to have all those security features and we'd like to use it in the cloud and we'd like to use it all these different places. And so then what happens is the company driven by developers actually chooses to get into a more intimate relationship with us. One that involves support, one that involves cloud, one that involves all the different features we've built around the open source core of the product. Let's talk a bit more about the, the open source um, core of the product. Would you recommend uh, anyone out there to, to come up with open source as a company um, for the, the key product of the company actually? Well, you know, it's hard. So I've watched various companies through the years. And, you know, you think about Linux, you think about Postgres, you think about MySQL, you think about our company. Um, it is a complicated journey for everyone to navigate. Think about what's going on between Elastic and the cloud vendors um, and everything going on these days. I think that it is absolutely the case that you can build a great open source company through the support model and, and just leave all the code open source. But I do think you're going to be limited in your ability to become a major player in the market if all you do is support an open source product. I think you actually have to get out there and innovate and lead the charge and come up with a responsible business model like MongoDB has, but that at the same time embraces contributions from open source all the time. In fact, in some ways, I think for really large open source products, having corporate sponsorship and backing and all that money going into making the products fantastic is kind of essential to scale them the next 10x and then the next 10x after that. 
So in some cases, it would also be the responsibility of the cloud vendor to actually support um, the, the database that it's offering um, as, as hosted solution, right? Um, to keep it very simple, um, but that might potentially not be enough, right? Yeah, so I think that gets into a into a pretty interesting area that's evolving right now with various companies creating licenses that protect their code from being used by people who would put it behind a brick wall. And this is pretty nuanced. The reason that the open source community is concerned about that is because if they do a pull of an open source product, they can use that product today in their company. They can change that, you know, they can make whatever change or innovation, they can use it. If they make a change to a product which their company is using behind some other firewall, it might be years before that change gets into that cloud product. And as a result, they're not really incented or supported as much in making those changes. So what the industry is going through right now is just walking that tightrope of loving open source, loving the innovation, loving the freedom from lock-in, while still offering these mission-critical general-purpose uh, products in the cloud and on-premises. And how do you think what the future there look like? I mean, what would be like an ideal scenario um, of uh, collaboration um, and, and uh, yeah, working together between the, the, the clouds and, and you guys? Well, so we have a great partnership with all three of the major cloud vendors and, and in fact, many, many smaller cloud vendors than those three. And so um, we actually have, have no trouble working with them. They recognize that when MongoDB comes on board with a customer, um, that they will probably sell five to seven dollars of other cloud services in addition to whatever goes on with the MongoDB database or data platform products. So we actually have a great relationship with them and, and we love working with all three. But that doesn't apply to a lot of other open source companies, right? Well, I think that it's a, it's a difficult journey and I think each company does need to find their own way. What I found is that if you have an open an authentic dialogue with the cloud providers about offering innovation on their platform that you'll often have a good discussion. And I know that's not the experience of everybody out there, but I will say one thing, I believe in MongoDB's model. As, as I said earlier in the call, we're all volunteering and I volunteered to come work at this great place because I believe that our model is one that is the right mix of embracing open source relentlessly and yet building a commercial business and partnering with all the hyperscalers. Okay. Um, and if you could start from scratch uh, with potentially like the, the next database thing, uh, what, what kind of model would you, would you pick for it? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm so focused on the model we have today. Uh, I don't know. I do think that the very first thing I would do is I would try to build, avoid building monoliths from day one and I would build a distributed architecture just out of the box. Um, passing messages around between different address spaces is so much cheaper than it used to be. And so I would, I would really, really struggle to not build a big monolith. And the other thing I would do is I would struggle to solidify the APIs between pieces as quickly as possible, because the thing that delights me most, and I saw this at my job at Grab Taxi, and I saw it at AWS, and I see it here at Mongo, is when a team just within their little box just goes and rebuilds their little box and no one else around them is anything but delighted. And that's where I think the power comes from. 
going back to it, step back to to open source. Um, so, how open should the governance of modern open source projects be? Um, I don't really know. It's not an area that I've spent a lot of time on. I know we have our license and other databases have their licenses. And um, I, don't, I don't really have a great opinion on that yet. I do know that when I talk to people in the open source community, they're happy with what we've done. That's all. Open source is more and more becoming the, the playground of the big boys. Is that right? No, I don't think so. And I know that's a lot of the perception and there's a lot of media coverage around that. But I mean, lately, let's think about me. I built an app lately. It, it doesn't do much. It just, you know, goes around and, and talks to all three MongoDB databases on all three clouds and shares data between them. And it's just a fun little app, couple hundred lines. And in order to get that working, I brought in all these different open source frameworks to do it. Um, so I actually think open source is flourishing just, you know, in a way that, I mean, like when I went to Oracle, you know, we had one way of building the software. We had one editor that we all used. I mean, that that would be a joke today if you tried to get an engineering team to use the same frameworks. And a large percentage of what they use is all open source based. But a large percentage also comes from big players, right? VS Code, for example, being like one of the most impressive editors that uh, came out in the last years. It's done by Microsoft. So isn't that changing? Yeah, I, d I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I still use Vim, so. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's nice. <laughs> do, do which, actually... which, I know, which I know is kind of scary. I'll, I'll, I'll escape out of Eclipse into Vim quite regularly when I'm doing something. <laughs> My question would be, how often do you use Vim in your daily life? So I probably uh, code every other weekend, some small thing. Um, mostly now that I'm at MongoDB, I'm trying out a feature, trying out an API and learning about our products. But before that, um, as you'll see on my LinkedIn profile, I got all my five kids to program different things. And I loved programming with them over the years. Everything from Arduinos to Raspberry Pis to, you know, big Linux machines. You know, I was amused one day when my son comes to me and he says, Dad, I... I have this really big problem. I said, what? And he goes, I spent $250 on AWS. I, I, I left some servers spun up and I was delighted. He thought he was in trouble and I was delighted that he'd been using AWS and, um, you know, had spent all that money innovating. So I love, I love still coding, but, you know, frankly, like I said, my job these days is more about levers on culture, levers on people in order to let developers both inside MongoDB and developers outside of MongoDB using our products uh, be more powerful every day and more delighted. In the database space, there are a lot of um, solutions entering the market that um, are trying to solve um, very simple um, and, and uh, uh, straightforward use cases. Um, you seem to be able to solve a lot of different use cases, right? Like uh, personalization and so on. Um, is there anything your, your system can't do? Well, that's interesting. So when you look at the database market as a whole, documents can represent rows and tables. Documents can represent, you know, deep nested documents with arrays and other structures inside of them. Documents can be key value stores. So yes, I do think that we have a, a very general solution and one that, you know, lots of people are using. Now, then you see these people come up with databases like graph databases and time series databases and things like that. And frankly, as a, as a CTO and as a person who ran 
companies, not just database tech companies, but like at Grab, we were a business to consumer company, not a B2B tech company. You know, it's difficult for me sometimes to see those products as full-blown products rather than as just features of a product. So if there is a way for you to have just a time series database or just a graph database, I think that's fine. But I think that most companies need a broader use case where they can accept graph uh, applications running against their operational data stores where they can accept time series running against their operational data stores as well. And so that's what we're really excited about. In fact, when you go and you meet with a lot of the cloud providers, they'll give you this architecture diagram, which has 40 or 50 pieces on it and how they all connect together. And I kind of feel that's like handing my teenage boy a toolbox with 100 tools in it and saying, build a birdhouse. When the reality is I really should just be handing, handing him a hammer, some paint and some nails and, and letting him go with just the right tools, which are very general tools. So, Mark, could you tell us a bit more about the technical challenges that you're facing right now in the company? Is a, Are you actually aware of the technical challenges or are you, are you more aware of the cultural challenges? Um, and uh, yeah, if so, what are the technical ones? Wow, it's it's really broad. Um, we have this set of this server at MongoDB, which has been around for a long time, and we're constantly working to decompose it into different shapes. As I said earlier in the call, we've built all this stuff around it, like our cl cloud managed service Atlas, and and so the challenges that we're facing right now are that each team is technically excellent in what they do, but then how as we become a much larger software company producing a much larger variety of products, how do we get those teams all able to innovate individually and yet still produce all the software they want to produce that is sophisticated and elegant? So I think that's actually a mix of a cultural challenge and a um, And a technical challenge. Because like I said, the APIs between teams and humans very much often reflect the APIs between uh, the code. And I, I think there's a rule for that. I think it's called uh, Conway's Law or something. And it, it reflects on the fact that the products you build uh, often reflect the org that built them. I think Microsoft had a famous phrase, you know, be careful that you don't ship your org chart. And uh, yeah, so we're working really, really hard on that. Um, at the same time, the, the metrics we're using are making sure that engineers can come up with an idea in a very lightweight way, can get that idea approved for a POC again in a very lightweight way, and then can come back and report onto us safely without being scared if it was a failure on whether that idea was a good idea or not. And so... You know, sometimes people get a little bit confused when people say embrace failure. It, it makes people think that managers should be out there encouraging people to fail. Well, you know, frankly, I think that's a little silly. However, we should we should absolutely embrace experimentation. And, and that's where I think that a lot of the companies that we work with who are moving from on-premises to the cloud or who are just modernizing their on-premises infrastructure They've gotten their orgs large enough that they're having trouble experimenting. And that's where we come in and we say, well, why don't you play with this and play with this? And so those are the changes we're going through right now, technically. From an organization perspective, do you also use OKRs or um, other, other tools that most modern organizations use these days? Or Okay, so we've now come to the part of the podcast that is most likely to be retweeted. So I have used OKRs at various organizations. I've used goals at various organizations. 
And over time, I have come to believe that done in a very lightweight way, those goals can be empowering. If you do too much, and let's say a team has five OKRs, and the team achieves OKR one, they go, wow, that was great. And they move on to OKR two, and they move on to OKR three. Now, because OKRs are often high stakes, the team is more rewarded for completing all five OKRs than they are for knocking it out of the park on some innovation OKR or something else, and maybe missing one of the five OKRs. And so we actually don't use OKRs in any kind of structural way at MongoDB. We actually give people guidance on what outcomes we would like. And then every team's projects have to say, what goal is this driving towards? What goal that was said at the highest level of the company, we call them tactical goals, uh, strategic goals and business goals. What does this drive towards? And then we leave people alone. So you actually tag the the topics you come up with as in someone working in your company. Uh, very, very interesting. Um, and it's very so, bottom up and it's very bottom up. So the team say, this is the work we need to do for this part of the product. And here's the goals it tags to rather than the company at the top saying, these are the goals we need to address this year. You guys need to come up with some tech that addresses this goal and this goal and this goal. So do you yeah. see the, the bottom up and top down different nature of the, of the structure? Yeah, and you essentially tackle both sides, right? Um, mm -hmm. I like that approach. I like that approach. As a closing question, I brought a little surprise for you. So I now open up my Mac terminal and type in Telnet localhost 27017. After authenticating with a very complicated password, I type in the Easter egg command you told me, time travel 1982. And we're both traveling back in the year I was born and you were working at a company called Adcom as a Pascal engineer. Um, we stand there both observing the young Mark for a minute uh, while he is hacking some routines into his machine before you finally have, have the chance to whisper uh, a little hint for the future into his ears. What would it be? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I think the way I would think about it is that I would whisper into my ears that the problems you solve are important. The problems you solve would delight you for the rest of your careers, of your career. Make sure that you focus on the people problems, the organizational problems, and the technical problems with the right mix at all times, and you will be both happy and successful. Wow, that's a good answer. So, uh, Mark, thanks a lot for your time. Um, if any of our listeners is interested in connecting with you or meeting you, is there any chance to, to see you soon somewhere? Well, the COVID has kind of put a damper on my travel schedule. I traveled 425,000 miles last year, and, and that certainly isn't happening this year. But I am having Q&As at our dot .live conferences. We're doing, I think, about 10 of them around the world. And then I'm also on Mark Loves Tech. You can reach out to me there. And I'm also on LinkedIn. And I'm telling you right now, I love chatting with people. And I find that I learn at least as much, if not more, from any interaction than they learn from me. Thanks a lot, Mark. See you soon. Thank you so much for the time.